You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. All right, well, good morning. Glad you're here with us this morning. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. So it's the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. So on Sunday mornings, we're currently studying through the letter to the Hebrews, which is one of the greatest books in the Bible. I mean, this is one that ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what makes it unique, is that we see in this book how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus and how the New Testament shows us all the fulfillment of the things that were pictured and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So it's been a great study so far. We're really coming up on the end of this study right now. You know, one of the things we like to do here at Whitefields is we like to take whole books of the Bible and study right through them. So we'll take verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we want to go from the beginning to the end because that way we can really learn and hear the entire message of a given section rather than just jumping around and hitting on our favorite topics. We can actually just let God speak to us through his word and take in the whole message of a particular book. So we're going to be finishing this study right as we come up on Easter. So on Palm Sunday, we're going to be doing a two-week Easter series. So Palm Sunday and Easter, we're going to be doing a mini-series called Rise Up. And in that series, we're going to be looking at Jesus' resurrection and what it means for us. And I just wanted to tell you this, that I was looking at some studies that show about uh, church attendance and people who don't attend church and things like that. And they were saying that people who don't attend church, they did these polls, and they said that people who don't attend church, uh, most people would go to church on Christmas and Easter But they usually won't just show up on their own. Usually they said that people would go, but they would go if a friend personally invites them. So I just want to challenge you with that this Easter season as we get ready for that celebration of Jesus' resurrection to consider and ask yourself that question, who am I going to invite to join me this Easter? And the good news is they're probably going to say yes, right? So this is like shooting fish in a barrel. For you who don't like like rejection and people telling you no, this is the best Sunday to to do it. Like just invite somebody because they're probably going to say yes. So after Easter, we're going to be doing a whole new series. It's going to be a little different than what we've been doing going through books of the Bible. We're going to take a break from that for a short time and do a series called The Trouble Is. The Trouble Is. And in that series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be addressing and talking about common objections and questions that people have to Christianity or questions that people struggle with. You might call them hurdles to believing or, or embracing Christianity. You know, and that's both for people who are Christians and for people who aren't Christians. This past week I did a poll online, just a very informal thing, but I got a ton of response. And it was, what are the biggest things that you struggle with in believing? And, and what I found was, was very interesting. I found that a lot of people who are Christians still struggle with a lot of questions. Just because we've chosen to follow Jesus doesn't mean that our questions are all answered. And then there are other people who said, you know, here are the things. I'm not a Christian. Here's why, because I can't get over this hurdle. And so our goal with this study is to say, you know, hopefully we can remove some of those barriers. Hopefully we can do that and we can address these questions with honest and real answers and we can help people embrace the gospel and trust in Jesus wholeheartedly and trust in the Bible. So today our text actually deals with one of those topics that a lot of people struggle with in believing and that's the topic of suffering there's a good God who can do anything he wants well then why do bad things happen why do people suffer why are there school shootings why is there cancer our text today addresses these kinds of questions head-on and it shows us how the gospel alone can equip us to look reality in the face and not lose hope so let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text which comes from Hebrews chapter 11 starting in verse 32 what more shall I say 
Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and da of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire and escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message, and I pray that as we study it, as we get into it, Lord, that we would understand it, and that, Lord, you would make it clear to us how this applies to us, and what the message of this is for us. Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity where there's been confusion. I pray that you'd bring encouragement where there's been discouragement in our lives. And Lord, this morning, we ask that you would strengthen us Lord, help us to see you, help us to see you and to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, we ask that you would do those things as we study your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine with me, if you would, a perfect life. What would a perfect life for you look like? A perfect life, everything you could ever ask for, everything you've ever dreamed of, what if you had it all? Imagine that you're fulfilled and successful at work in your career. Imagine that you're married to your soulmate. You had a dream wedding and you've got beautiful children. You and your spouse, you're, you're people of faith. You go to church together. You pray together. You have plenty of money. You're able to travel the world and go on vacation. If that were the case, wouldn't it be easy to say, my heart is full and say something like, all is well with my soul. But then what if after having all of those things, you lost it all? So that's what happened, actually, to 17 families in Florida this past week. And aside from them, there are countless other tragedies that people experienced this past week and every day in our country and around the world. Illnesses, accidents, they affect countless lives. And so here in this section, we are told that there's actually something, that if you have it, it will enable you to face anything that life can bring your way, that life can throw at you, that life can deal you, and still be able to say with confidence and joy that it is well with your soul. So what is that thing and how can we get it? The title of today's message is Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. There are two things that this section teaches us. So here's our, our kind of outline, our two big bullet points, two things that we see in this section. Number one, having faith makes your life better, except when it doesn't. So having faith makes your life better, except when it doesn't. And secondly, the promise of something better. The promise of something better. So first of all, having faith makes your life better, except when it doesn't. And remember who this letter was written to. Let's remember the context. It was written to people who were tempted to give up. They were discouraged. They were tired. They were worn out. Maybe some of you can relate to that in your lives. Many of them had become Christians. But as a result of becoming Christians, their family and friends had turned against them. Their lives had not gotten better. In fact, just the opposite for some of them. Becoming Christians had actually made their lives more complicated, made their lives harder. And so some of these people got to the point where they said, you know what, I'm just ready to throw in the towel. I tried 
this whole Christianity thing, and I think it's just not helping me. It's not working out for me. It's not doing anything for me. I'm just going to throw in the towel because who wants to do something that makes your life harder, right? That doesn't make any sense. And there are plenty of people today who would say the exact same thing. I tried out Christianity. I went to church, but it didn't work for me. It did, I didn't get anything out of it. My life didn't change. It didn't get any better. So I've just kind of given up on it. I've moved on to other things. And to these people, to such people, the writer of this letter would say, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. Don't give up. And I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't give up on Jesus. And throughout this letter, the writer has been showing us over and over in different ways what is so special and what is so unique and different about Jesus. That Jesus is not just another great person like many great people who have lived throughout history. He's not just another great teacher or another religious leader, but he's actually so much more. He is the divine Savior. He is actually God come to us in order to save us. And then the writer showed us how God has been foretelling and foreshadowing and predicting who Jesus would be for thousands of years in many different ways throughout the Old Testament and everything that went on in the Old Testament in all the Hebrew scriptures. He was foretelling and foreshadowing who Jesus would be and what Jesus would do. And the end result of seeing all of this now, he says to us, he, he brings to our attention, the end result of seeing all of this and understanding who Jesus is, is to show us that Jesus is the Savior that we absolutely need, and the only reasonable response to seeing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is to put your faith in him, to put your faith in him, to believe the gospel, and to look to Jesus and to embrace him as your Savior. But then someone might ask the question, and it's a valid question, Okay, well, what does that even mean, right? Like you tell me, uh, believe in Jesus, have faith. Well, what does that mean? What does it look like? How do I know if I'm doing it or not doing it? So, you know, help me out here. Here in chapter 11, it's almost as if the author anticipated that question. He says, I'm glad you asked. Let me explain to you. Let me show you what it looks like to have faith, what that looks like in somebody's life. And so in chapter 11, the author has been answering that question of what it looks like and means to have faith by pointing us to some of the great people of faith throughout Jewish history, people like Abraham and Joseph and Moses. And what he's saying is, look at them. Look at what it meant in their lives that they had faith. They, it wasn't just like an intellectual assent to certain theoretical beliefs. No, beliefs. No, these people trusted in, they relied on, they clung to God and what God had promised them. And their faith was seen in the way that they lived, in practical ways, in how they lived. And that's what we're talking about when we say that we should have faith and live by faith. And now, starting in verse 32, the writer is still talking about those heroes from Jewish history, but he takes kind of a turn. He, he shifts gears a little bit and he wants to tackle a new issue. And here he's going to say, okay, but look at these people. They had faith. They walked with God. They were faithful to God. Where did it get them in life? What did it do? What happened to them as a result of them having faith? Where did their faith and devotion to God get them? And so in this section, he gives us a list, a list of great people of faith throughout history. But it's actually two lists. It's actually two lists, and I'll tell you why. Because there's a division. It's actually, there's a division between the people at the beginning of the list and the people at the end of the list. And that division actually takes place right in the middle of verse 35. You know, that's the thing about the Bible is that the numbers and stuff, they weren't added until much later to help people navigate it. And so sometimes the numbers aren't placed in always the most optimal spot. Here we have two lists, and the number is placed in the... I think the wrong spot. I mean, that's just my opinion. I think that the break should really be in the middle of verse 35, and I'll, I'll show you why as we go on. 
from verse 32 to the first half of verse 35, you've got one list. And then the second list is from the second half of verse 35 down to verse 38. Now, let's talk about the first list. The people in the first list, what are they characterized by? Each of them, it says that they had faith in God. And as a result of their faith, things got better. Their lives got better. By faith, they went from weakness to strength. By faith, they overcame great obstacles. By faith, they looked like they were about to be defeated. And then they became victorious. They were facing overwhelming odds. Everything was against them, but they triumphed. Why? Because they had faith. In every case, it looked like they were done for. All hope was gone. They were doomed. But in the end, they came out victorious. And the reason was because they had faith. God protected them. God gave them success because they had faith. Let's look at some of these people. You might recognize some of these stories that are being alluded to here. So first of all, it says like, for example, through faith, people shut the mouths of lions. Well, what's that talking about? That's talking about Daniel. Maybe you've heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel, here's the story. He had faith in God. He was faithful to God. He was devoted to God. But where he lived in Babylon, they passed a law that no one was allowed to pray to God. You could only pray to the king because they treated their king as their God. But Daniel refused to go along with that. He said, no, I will remain faithful. And he says, no matter what happens, I have faith that my God will carry me through if I remain faithful to him. And so Daniel continued to pray to God until one day, even though Daniel was a prominent official in the Babylonian government, somebody reported him to the authorities for praying to the true and living God. And he got arrested. And his punishment was that he was going to be thrown into a pit of hungry lions and they were going to eat him alive. Now this was quite the punishment, but it was also a very common punishment. And every time that they did this, every time you throw somebody into the lions, you get the exact same result. You come back the next day and they're gone. They're no longer there. So they take Daniel and they throw him in this pit of lions, expecting that the exact same thing will happen that always happens. They close up the pit. They come back the next day. And what do they find? Daniel's alive. The lions haven't touched him. It's a miracle. Daniel had faith in God. Daniel was faithful to God. And the result was God saved him in a miraculous way by shutting the mouths of the lions. Another story that you might know is in verse 34. It says, some quenched the power of fire. What's that talking about? It's talking about another famous story from the book of Daniel. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? So we read this story in Daniel chapter 3. And here's the story that these guys, very similar to Daniel, they were told to bow down to this huge statue that the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had erected of himself and demanded that everybody worship it. They would play the music, everybody bows down, but these guys said, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. We, we worship our God and we're not going to worship some idol. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to do that because they had faith, because they were faithful to God. And their punishment was they were thrown in a fiery furnace. It says that it was so hot that the people who threw them in there died as they threw them in. And yet they're thrown into this furnace and everyone expects that they're going to be dead, but they don't die. Somehow God intervenes and protects them from being burned by the flames. God saved them and rescued them from the situation. And they come walking right out of it alive. And in every one of these situations, in each of these stories, we see that people faced incredible odds, overwhelming odds. Some of them faced certain death, difficulty, suffering. But because of their faith in God, because of their faithfulness to God, they were spared, they were saved, and they were rescued. Some were poor, some were weak, but they had faith in God, and as a result, things got better. And the greatest of all of these examples is found in verse 35, where it says that there were women who received back their dead, raised to life again. 
In the ESV translation, it says that they receive them back by resurrection. In other words, they receive them back from the dead. Now, there are a couple people in the Bible who this is describing, who were raised from the dead. In 1 Kings chapter 17, there's this woman called the widow of Zarephath, who through the ministry of Elijah the prophet and the power of God, her son died, but he's brought back to life. Then we read in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha's protege, Elisha, there's this woman called the Shunammite woman. And through the ministry of Elisha and the power of God, her son was dead, but he's raised back to life again. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus raised two people back from the dead. So there was the daughter of a man named Jairus, and then there was a friend and disciple of Jesus' name, Lazarus. Now, these are the kind of stories that we love, aren't they? These are the kind of stories we can't get enough of. Like Hollywood loves to make movies about this exact same thing, right? Victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. Many movies, right? They're made about the poor kid from the wrong side of town. Terrible family situation, but he doesn't give up. He has faith in God and he's faithful to God. And then he gets some kind of miraculous break and he's able to overcome incredible odds and he experiences great success as an athlete or, or something else in his life. Or we love to hear those testimonies, don't we, about the person who says, you know, all the doctors said, there's no hope, they're not going to make it, but you didn't give up, you prayed, you fought, and now that sick person is all better and they've recovered and they're standing right here and it's a miracle, praise the Lord. We love those stories, don't we? I love those stories. We should love those stories. I have my own stories like that of things that I've experienced even in my own family, even with my own kids. And we celebrate those things and we absolutely should because in those stories, here's the thing, we see God at work. We see that God cares and he intervenes and when we put our faith in him, when we seek him in prayer, he answers those prayers. We love these stories. My business was going under, but I prayed, and, and I trusted God, and God did something amazing, and he turned it around, and now it's going great, and now I'm successful. Great stories. We celebrate them. We're glad that those stories exist because they inspire us. They build our sense of awe and our trust in God. But here's the thing. If you would stop here in the first half of verse 35, here's what you would think. This is what faith does. This is where faithfulness to God will always get you. If you have faith, you will overcome anything. And things will work out for you. If you have faith, if you are faithful to God, then everything's going to work out, no matter how impossible it might seem. If you just have enough faith, if you constantly, you, you will constantly find yourself victorious, walking in success, and always overcoming hardship and sickness and even death. Except that's not where the story ends. In the second half of verse 35, he, give, he begins another list. In the second half of verse 35, there's a change, a major change. The, the New King James Version, I like a little bit better here because it really makes it pop. Here's what it says. It says, but there were others, others. There were others who believed, who had faith, who trusted God, who obeyed God, and yet their lives went in a completely different direction than the people in the first list. The people in the first list had faith, and as a result, they escaped the edge of the sword. The people on the second list, they also had faith, but it says that they died by the edge of the sword. People on the first list, they were faithful to God and they obeyed God and everything worked out. But the people on the second list, they were also faithful to God. They also obeyed God, but they got stoned to death and they got sawed in half. That really, that ruined your day. Like Noah, he was mocked for his faith. Jeremiah was mocked for his faith. Joseph was thrown in prison. Zechariah, the prophet, was stoned to death in between the altar and the temple. It, when it mentions people being sawed in two, that's a reference to Isaiah, the prophet, who according to tradition, that's how he was killed. They took him and they sawed him in two. Those are some pretty big names. 
Does this mean that the people in the second list had any less faith than the people in the first list? Absolutely not. That, that's exactly the point that it's making. The point of these two lists is to show us two key things about the Christian faith. Two key things about the Christian faith. Number one, that having faith in God and, and following Jesus doesn't guarantee that you will have a problem-free life. It doesn't guarantee that God will rescue you out of every problem or that you will always have success. And secondly, it reminds us of this, that the ultimate hope of Christianity is something bigger, something better than just having a comfortable problem-free life. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the promise of something better. I like how the ESV puts it. It says the promise of a better life. In verse 39, it says that all of these people, although they had great faith, they did not receive the reward of their faith in this life. Verse 40 says that God promised to give them something better. Well, better than what? Better than this life. Better than even the best life that you could ever dream of. In verse 35, when it talks about the people who received their dead back from the grave, who received their loved ones back from the grave, what could be better than that? I know that there are some of you who have lost loved ones. Now just imagine how much you wish that they could just be here with you right now. Isn't that the best thing you could possibly imagine? And yet he says there's actually something better. There's actually what he calls a better resurrection. There is a better resurrection, and that is where our hope needs to lie. The people who have that hope, the hope of a better resurrection, look at what it did for them. It made them so bold that they were willing to look, they were able to look pain and suffering and even death right in the eye and not even flinch. He talks about these people who were tortured and the only thing they had to do to make it stop was just renounce their faith. And remember who he's talking to. He's, he's talking to people who are considering renouncing their faith. And he's saying, look at these people. They were tortured. And the only thing they had to do was renounce their faith. But they wouldn't do it. And why? What could enable someone to not do that? Because in Christ, they had a promise of something better. Something better. Something that they wouldn't give up for anything. Look at the people in this first list again. Daniel, saved from the mouths of lions. Incredible. Miraculous. Amazing. But do you know what happened to Daniel after that? That's the part of the story that we don't usually tell, was that Daniel lived for a few more decades, he got really old, and then he died. Right? We don't usually talk about that part. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're saved from the flames of the fire. And then a couple of years later, they eventually got sick and, and passed away. These people who were raised from the dead, none of them are alive today. And what that means is that at some point in their life, they died again, and that time they died for good. Every single person who Jesus healed eventually got sick again and died. You see, as wondrous as these miracles were, they were only temporary. They, were, they only postponed the inevitable. They were only temporary relief because eventually sickness and death overcame them and will overcome all of us. The same is true for us. See, you can have everything, good health, success in your career, a beautiful family, but eventually this life will end. And what Jesus said is this, what will it benefit you in the end if you gained the whole world and yet you lost your own soul. Our hope has to be in something better than just this life, something bigger than just a good life now. Paul the Apostle, he said this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. He said these others though, look at these others. Their eyes were set on something better, something bigger, a better resurrection. They weren't just hoping for temporary relief. Their hope was set on something better. And as a result, they are lifted up high above. And notice this, they're actually elevated above Abraham and Moses. Can you imagine that? The people who the Jews revered more than anyone else, Abraham and Moses. He says these people 
are even greater than them. These are the true heroes of the faith. These are the people who had faith even in the midst of great trials and walked with God by faith even in the midst of these great difficulties. These are the people, he says, of whom the world is not worthy. But this does bring up some interesting questions, doesn't it? So, so here's a few questions that this brings up. So for example, if God is loving and good, then why is there so much suffering in this world? Why doesn't God put an end to it? Come with me again to the, to the beginning of human history, at the very beginning of the Bible. One of the very first stories that the Bible tells us is to answer this very question. It tells us that when God created the world, sin and death weren't a part of what he created. They weren't a part of his system. They weren't part of his design. But see, we chose, rather than trusting God and walking with him by faith, that we would go our own way and do our own thing and, and try it on our own. And the results of that were disastrous. See, we did that and we brought, by doing that, foreign elements into the world. The elements of sin, the element of corruption, and the result of which is death. And then something very interesting happens. And this is really what I want to bring your attention to. Something very interesting happens there in Genesis, right after sin and death and corruption come into the world. Here's what happens. It says that after that happened, God forced the people that he had created to leave the garden paradise that he had created for them to live in. Now you might think, wow, why is he doing that? Well, even worse, he says that he put an angel with a sword to guard the entrance so that they could never come back. And you might think, wow, that's pretty harsh. Like, why would God do that? Like, where's the grace, man? Well, it actually tells us why. It's absolutely fascinating when you really understand why that happened. It says right there in Genesis chapter 3, it was so, and it says this literally, God said, so that the people may never come back and eat from the tree of life, because if they do, they'll live forever. In other words, God was preventing us from coming and eating from the tree of life lest we eat from it and live forever. Now that doesn't seem very nice, does it? Like where's the grace in that? We mess up one time and he cuts us off from eternal life forever? Why would a loving God do something like that? Why would a God not, wouldn't he want us to eat from the tree of life and live forever? Here's the reason. This is actually, and I want you to see this, this is the mercy and the grace of God. And it's actually a foreshadowing of the gospel Check this out. See, when sin entered the world and, and death through sin, we, we then became fallen creatures. We became cursed. We're broken. We're not. And we feel it deep inside. We're not who we should be. Something's wrong with us and something's wrong with the world. And so God, in his mercy, think about this. What if they had gone in this fallen state and eaten from that tree of life and lived forever in a fallen state in a broken world? That would be a tragedy. And so rather than let that tragedy happen, God intervened and he said, no, I'm going to block the way to this tree of life. And here's the reason, because God was saying this, I'm not going to let you live forever in this fallen state. I'm not going to let you live forever in this fallen world. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you die so that one day I can resurrect you. Because one day I'm going to come. And I'm going to destroy the curse of sin. One day I'm going to come and I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to make all things right. And so I am going to let you die now in this flesh on this earth so that one day I can resurrect you to new life, to eternal life, where there will be no more sin and no more death and no more pain and sorrow. Instead, eternal life with me and perfection. See, that's the hope of the gospel. That's the mercy that we see at work there. And that's the good news. And so if God loves us, then why does he allow there to be sickness and death? Here's why. Because he has something better for us. A better resurrection. In order for us to experience that better resurrection, these bodies have to die. But then you might ask the next question. 
you might say, I understand that, okay, we all have to die in order to be resurrected to eternal life. But what about all the evil and violence in the world? I mean, why can't it just be that we all just eventually get old and then die peacefully in the end? Why all this violence? And that question is also answered by another story. Why does God let this go on? It's in that same list of stories. It's called prehistory in a way, in theological terms. This is the time before Abraham. It's explaining why things are the way they are. So in Genesis chapter 6, it tells us that God looked at the earth, and here's what it says. The Lord saw the wickedness of man upon the earth, and he was grieved to the heart, and he regretted that he had ever created man on the face of the earth. See, what this means is that when God looked at the world, he saw all the brokenness, all the pain, the same things that you and I see and experience. He saw all the things that weren't right, and it caused him pain in his heart. It says it grieved him to the heart. Deep anguish, bitter anguish in his heart. Unfulfilled longing for what could be and what was supposed to be. See, here's the thing. When God sees you suffering, he weeps along with you. He isn't indifferent. He weeps over school shootings and accidents and violence because he didn't create us for that. He didn't create us for sickness and death and violence and evil. And those things grieve him to the heart. And there in Genesis chapter 6, what happens is that God essentially comes to this place where it's a crossroads. He's going to make a decision. Is he just going to pull the plug on the whole thing or is he going to let it ride? Is he going to let it ride and carry out this plan that he's had to redeem the world and save us? See, if he ends it all, if he just pulls the plug on it in that moment, well, then he saves himself a whole lot of heartache. He saves himself a whole lot of grief uh, over the brokenness and sin in the world. But instead of ending it all, God instead decides, no, I will, even though it hurts me, I will let this go on so that I can carry out my plan of redemption and salvation for the world. In other words... It was for our sakes that God chose not to destroy the world and end it all at that time. He chose instead to endure the heartache and the pain that this broken world causes him so ultimately, in the end, he could end evil without ending us. See, that's the end game, ending evil without ending us. And what that means is that when it comes to evil and suffering in the world today, God isn't indifferent about it. He's absolutely grieved by it. He cares about it. He sees it all and it breaks his heart. But one day... And truly one day, he will put an end to it all. In fact, he has already acted to put an end to it all and make everything right. And the day is coming, even though it's not here yet. And you might ask, well, then what is he waiting for? Why why are we still waiting? And the answer is this. We're still waiting because God's not done saving people yet. There are still more people who he wants to bring salvation to so they can experience that better resurrection. And I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad he waited for me. But the other thing is this. There are other people out there God is on a mission still to save those people. And the exciting thing is that we get to be part of that mission, his mission in the world. There's one last question that I'll bring up on the same topic of of sin and suffering and, and why is there evil and all these things. So we've got these two lists here. The first group had faith and their lives got better. The other group had faith and their lives didn't get better. Why is that? Why is it that sometimes God intervenes and makes things better and other times he doesn't? In the Gospel of John, there's this interesting story. It says that Jesus was walking one day, probably in Jerusalem, and it says that as he passed by, he saw a man who was born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he's in the condition he's in. What's Jesus saying? 
He's saying that whatever this person's condition, wherever, whether this person will be healed or not healed, the end purpose of all of it would be the same. That either this way or that way, that God would be glorified. And see, so here's the thing about me and you. God knows you. God knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you need. And there are some of us who we don't even think about God until there's some kind of crisis in our lives. We don't even get down on our knees and seek him until there's a crisis. On the other hand, God sometimes acts in different ways in order to reveal himself to us, in order to reveal certain things about who he is. There are things about God that you will only learn by going through certain experiences. And sometimes the things that happen to us also, that's one thing to also remember that we see from the story where Jesus sees this blind man. It's not always even just for our sakes. Sometimes it's for the sakes of other people around us, people who have their eyes on our lives, people who are close to us. In England, during the Reformation, there were several people who were killed for their faith. And one of them was a man named Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer, and, and here's what happened. They were about to burn him at the stake and he prayed that God would save him, but in the end, he realized he wasn't going to be saved from being burned at the stake. And so his last words were, they let him speak his last words, and here's what he said. My hope is that as I burn, by God's grace, it will ignite such a light in England for the gospel as will never be put out. See, what he's saying is, what's happening to me, I realize, is not just about me. There are other people around me. See, the comforting thing is this. God knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what other people around you need. And so you can absolutely trust him. In the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's this interesting thing that they say. You know, they're kind of arguing with the king. King's like, I'm going to play the music. You're going to bow down. They're like, no, we're not. And so then at one point they say this. They say, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And then they say this, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But then check out what they say next. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and serve your idols. He's going to do it. We know that he can, but even if he doesn't, we're still, we're still going to keep our faith. See, though, that expresses true faith and trust in God. God can save me, and I, I believe that he will, but even if he doesn't, still I will trust him all the same. I trust and I pray that God will do this thing in my life, but even if he doesn't, my faith will not be shaken because I believe that he loves me, that he's in control, that he knows more about what I need than even I know. And for him to be most glorified in me and through me, I trust that he's going to do that. So you can only say that if your hope is in something bigger than this life. In 2 Timothy 1.10, it says this, Our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what we're talking about. And what happens when you really understand that is this, it, it removes all the fears. When you really understand that you are hoping in something better than this life, it removes all the fears that would usually paralyze you in this life, whether it's the fear of rejection or, or failure or loss. See, when you understand you have this promise of something better, a better resurrection, it enables you, it empowers you to live courageously and boldly and fearlessly now because you literally have nothing to lose. Even the worst that this life can bring at you will only serve to bring you closer to Jesus and closer to that which will ultimately fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. And therefore, you're free. You're free. You're free to live as a person on a mission knowing that after this, the true story begins. The story which no one has ever read, which lasts forever, and of which every chapter will be better than the one before. Jesus said that his disciples on the night he was crucified, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? 
He told them, because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I am, there I will come back from there and I will bring you so that where I am, you will be also. That's the promise. It's the promise of something better. That's what enabled them to live boldly and without fear. And because Jesus has gone before us and abolished death in order to give us life and immortality, we can live that same way as well. I'll finish with this story. You remember how I asked you in the beginning to imagine a perfect life, a great career, a beautiful family, plenty of money. Well, that pretty much describes the life of a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford. He was a Christian man who lived in Chicago around the turn of the 20th century. He was a prominent lawyer and he was very successful. He had a lot of real estate holdings and properties that he owned in Chicago. And uh, together with his wife, he, he married the love of his life and they had five beautiful children and everything was going well. Everything was going perfect until it wasn't. You see, it all began when his youngest child, his only boy, died from illness at a young age. And then the next year, the great Chicago fire took place and it wiped out most of his real estate holdings. Well, the family was able to recover from both of those tragedies with their faith still intact and they slowly recovered financially. Business took off again. But in 1873... Horatio decided, you know, they had, they had made some progress financially, and so he decided to send his wife and his daughters on a vacation to Europe. And so he sent them ahead by boat, and while he stayed in Chicago to finish up some of his business affairs, and then he planned to join them afterwards. But as that boat with his wife and four daughters was on its way from the U.S. to Europe, it crashed into another boat, and it sunk. And many of the passengers died, including Horatio's four daughters. His wife was found floating unconscious in the ocean, but she was saved, and she was taken to England by rescue boats, and from England, she was able to send her husband a telegraph of only two words, and the two words she sent were, saved alone. Imagine getting that message. None of us wants to imagine that. Horatio immediately left work and he got on a ship. He went to England as fast as he could to meet his wife. And as they were, he was traveling over the water, he realized that he would be traveling the same route and going over the exact same spot that had consumed his daughters and where his daughters had died. And so when they came near that place, he had asked the captain to show him where that crash took place. And he came out and he stood on the deck and he contemplated the terrible things that had happened to his family. And as he did, he was overwhelmed with this sense that his daughters were not buried at the bottom of the sea, but they were wrapped tightly in the arms of their loving Heavenly Father. And so he returned to his cabin and he put his pen to paper and he began to write. And what he wrote was a song, which we're gonna sing now in just a minute. It's a song, It Is Well With My Soul. And as we do that, as we sing this song, as we close, I want you to think about this. What could empower someone who just lost everything to be able to say, it is well with my soul? There's only one thing. There's only one thing. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the promise of something better. And that hope and that promise, it can be yours today. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you look to him, if you cling to him, if you rely on him and what he did for you on the cross where he took your place in death, and he took your place in judgment so that you could receive his place in life, so you could receive a new status before God, so you could be made right with God, forgiven, justified, redeemed, receiving grace and mercy. If that is the case with you, then there is nothing that life can bring your way of which you won't be able to say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this promise and this hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray for all of us in here today that we would embrace that hope by faith, that we would put our faith in Jesus and what you've done for us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Thank you that it is something, it is a treasure which nothing can take away from us. And Lord, I pray for all of us that our hope would be in that of a better resurrection. Lord, whatever does happen in this life, whether things go well or they don't, Lord, may our hope be in you, knowing that you know what we don't know and that you love us so much. Lord, may we be filled with a sense of that and a trust in you today as we go and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope, amen. God bless you. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.